Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. Andrew Zwerneman is co-founder and president of Cana Academy and author of a handy little book entitled History Forgotten and Remembered, which will be our topic today. Welcome, Andrew. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to be with you. I, and I so very much appreciate the opportunity to have a chat with you. First, let me ask you a general question. Tell us, what is Cana Academy? What do you do? We are an educational mission entirely devoted to supporting teachers in the humanities. The team and I, uh, the master teachers at our, our academy, overall have you know, collectively 100 plus years of experience teaching in, in private schools and public charter schools. And two years ago, we decided with a circle of friends and allies that we, we wanted to take our experience and, and find clever ways to offer that to as many teachers and to impact as many students as we could. So we founded Canaan Academy. We train teachers, so we offer professional development. We create resources on our website. Uh, they're available digitally. They're also mostly available in hard copies. And the whole idea is to help teachers who teach literature and history especially to do a better job, to find ways to bring the very best educational opportunities for students in a classical or liberal arts mode. Uh, we serve all kinds of schools. We're a, a Christian mission. We're ecumenical. My, my co-founder and I are, are Catholic, but we decided we're going to work with any kind of school because we want to fuel the public good by making education top-notch and to bring the best training and the best resources to support the teachers. So that's what we do. We're, we're called Cain Academy because we were inspired by uh, the Dostoevsky version of the, the Cato Wedding Feast, and that's, you find that in the Brothers Karamazov. And Alyosha, the protagonist, course was enduring a terrible crisis on several levels of his life and uh, a, a dream version of the Cana wedding feast story was restorative and he found his way both to serve others and a restored confidence in the goodness of, of the order of things and, and that's what we want to do we want to help teachers be confident in the, the order of things, the goodness of, of, uh, of reality, the world that we're opening up for our students and uh, find a way to be inspired and visionary as you go into the classroom. It's a hard thing to be a teacher today. So Kane Academy is, is trying to imitate Jesus and Mary and being attentive to the needs of, of uh, the folks at the feast and to provide an abundance of the best. So that's what we're about. You mentioned the classical liberal education support. If you look at the last 20 years, is the demand for explicitly classical education growing? Yes, and I think it's growing in, in two different ways. There's a very conscious, concerted effort 
to tap into the great Western tradition. I call it a, a great moral response. I think a lot of parents especially are just shocked by the poor quality of education their children are getting. They're, they're shocked by the quality of the learning culture that your typical school in America provides. Sometimes they don't even know that they're reaching for classical or liberal arts education. But here we are in the charter school movement or the Christian classical schools or the renaissance of great books, a return to taking books, art very seriously, taking history very seriously. And this ends up being an answer to the question that a lot of people have who, who don't even know what they're looking for. So I think in two ways, yes, the demand for what we're offering, the demand for the general classical liberal arts movement is growing. Is there a conviction among parents that the public schools are still getting worse in terms of the quality of education? I think a lot of parents are awakening to, to how poor the, the schools are and how corrupt the culture is. And I think a lot of parents just simply don't know how to respond to the politicization of, of literature and the study of humanities. I think they're shocked that increasingly we can't even think about the, the rigors of doing science without saying that it's somehow or another you know, racially or culturally controversial. People are just surprised by this. They, the common sense that we would, would seem to hold parents to a, a basic education uh, seems to be lost within the schools. Like the, the, the leaders of the schools, the teachers of the schools, the designers of the curricula are not matching the normal common sense uh, among American parents and their kids. So yes, I, I think they're growing awareness of what a problem there is. And uh, at the same time, I think they're also attuned to the growing division within the culture at large. So, you know, a couple of, a couple of things are converging here to shake people, you know, down to their foundations and say, you know, how are you going to respond? What kind of what kind of life are you going to try to secure for your kids uh, through a good school, through good communities? Um, and when you send them off to college, what are they going to be prepared for? What are you sending them into? And I think increasingly parents as, as consumers are looking at universities and colleges and they're saying, gosh, why would I send my kids a major in history or English or even religion in, in many places when the education they're going to get there seems so at odds with what our families about, what our faith is about, our, our ancestors, and our, our sense of, of what America is about. So, you know, the crisis is pretty broad, and I would say that there's a growing awareness among typical families that this is a mess. They may not understand it, but there's, their common sense tells them something different has to happen. This gets us really to the topic of your book, uh, History Forgotten and Remembered. You know that the NAEP exams in U.S. history, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, they give the history, U.S. history is one of the subjects that they do every few years, not as often as math and reading, but every time 12th graders take that test, more than half of them score below basic. That's the, the scoring, which is essentially an F. What is going wrong with kids learning, not learning history, what, what would you pinpoint as, as the problem? My assessment is sort of off to the side from the, uh, the hard content of history. So I think the hard content follows a commitment to history. Uh, it follows a, a habit of mind of thinking historically. I think what we're seeing in the broad culture, and it's been going on for almost all my lifetime, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up, 
is a general uh, disregard for America, a general disregard for the West. There are greater and lesser forms of the Marxist rejection of religion, the Marxist abandonment of philosophy. Religion is a fiction. People don't really respond to, to God's revelation to us. Uh, philosophy, uh, which is directed towards understanding, is negligible. What we really need to do is change the world. A corresponding expression of this, or, or a consequential expression of this, you find in the 1619 Project in Howard Zinn's um, a people's, a people's History of the United States, both of which basically empty the American founding of anything good and zero in almost exclusively on exploitative events uh, that have to do with race, gender, and class, and then reconstruct history around an imagined chronicle or sequence of events having to do with exploitation. And, and you know, Zinn is really clear about this in his opening chapter. He's absolutely clear that there really is no such thing as America, that nations, states, political communities, they don't really exist. What you have are your classes. You have the exploited and you have the exploiters. So America is not really a society moving in time, moving in, in, uh, in history. It's really um, a big struggle. And essentially, we are defined as divided from one another. So if that's the case, if, if that's the, the kind of the cultural environment in which students are asked to study history, I think a lot of students and their parents just go, well, what the heck? Why are we doing this? This makes no sense at all. I don't want anything to do with this. And what do you see in the university today? You see a, a huge decline in the number of students studying history. You see that decline across the humanities, but, but history, which was one of our great strengths, I the at the, at the academic level uh, has really waned. And I think it's declined in large part because of that fragmentary approach to history. So, it, and if people buy into that fragmentarian approach, then uh, their, their desire to study history wanes. They really don't see the purpose of it. And of course, they're not gonna study the content of history. They're not gonna remember dates and events, important persons. There was a report issued by the American Historical Association a year or two ago showing that since 2011, the number of history majors has gone down about 31, 32%, just in, in eight years, uh, a huge, a huge decline uh, on that. But yeah, you're right. So, so yeah, the, it is suffering at the higher ed level as well. Now, when you say you must learn history, you know what the progressive response is. It's whose history? The assumption being that history is always a partisan construct of some kind. How do you how do you answer? How do you respond to that? Well, I think there's something dishonest and mischievous about that. So, of course, only people have history. So history is not an abstraction. It, it's, a, it's a habit of human mind. It's, it's a, a narrative story about peoples, about societies, about civilizations. So, of course, you're going to have the history of America, the history of the West. And because we're Americans, because we're Westerners, there's a very real responsibility to make sure that students get those narratives, right? But, but the mischievous uh, or dishonest part of the rejection of that, I think, lies here, that the history of our humanity is not either primarily or exclusively the history of exploitation. That's just a big lie. The, our history is largely, or I should say foundationally and you know, at the heart, uh, a history of the great two loves. 
Western civilization is born from the love of wisdom, which emerged historically as an event in ancient Greece, and the great love of God and neighbor, which was born as an event in ancient Israel. And there are just a myriad of expressions of those two loves that you know pulsate throughout Western history. And to reduce all of that story to exploitation is just dishonest. So, that, so that's my, my main response to that. It's, it's, don't, don't try to reduce the narrative to something other than what it is. It, this is you know, you, we don't have the great art. We don't have the great science. We, we don't have the great uh, defense of human liberty in Western history, apart from the foundational loves that we find in Greece and Israel. That, that's what I would say in response. And, and I think most history teachers at the secondary level have not thought about that. So when 1619 Project or Zen's People's History comes along, they go, well, what do we say? What do we do? You know, look at slavery in America or, you know, or look at the disregard for women in the past or, or you know, look at any uh, offense against uh, Native Americans, all of which are realities. Isn't it the case then that we can't say anything positive or isn't it the case that we can't predicate something good about America's existence or its founding? Another way to respond is to look at statesmen who were very sensitive to those kinds of exploitations. Look at Martin Luther King. He had a very classical mind in the way he approached slavery and segregation. When he was in the Birmingham jail, he didn't simply resort to laying out again the history of slavery and segregation. He turned back to uh, the Middle Ages and invoked Augustine and Aquinas. Here, this, you know, he's, what is he? He's a, he's a Southern a black Baptist pastor invoking Augustine and Aquinas, for goodness sake, on the natural law and saying um, a, a law of segregation can't justifiably be a law if you consider it under the natural law. He invoked the Bible for an image of the human person and said, we can't recognize the equality of our brothers and sisters all around us, whatever their skin color is, without recognizing it, they're all God's children. And, and so, you know, the Bible's a great force for us, a great source of and wellspring of insight for us. He, he turned to the founding. And even though the principal authors of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were slaveholders, and, you know, we who live in Virginia are particularly aware of this and sensitive to this, he didn't disregard them. He, he looked at the principles they articulated and say, we've got to bring these to fruition. We've we got to get past the slavery. We've got to get past the segregation. We've got to get past, you know, Jim Crow and, and the lynchings. All of those are real, and we can't hide from them. They're very painful. They're part of our narrative. At the same time, in order to be a people who, who measure human beings by their character, by their spiritual their intellectual and their moral qualities by the communities they build rather than by the color of the skin. We need to invoke these great sources. That is an historical mind. That, that's a classical liberal historical mind. And that's the kind of mind that I'm encouraging my fellow teachers to adopt through this little book that I wrote. In the study of history, you really warn against using history to promote some kind of enlightened action. That, that you're really out to cultivate, as you put it, certain habits of mind, but not an agenda. What's wrong with putting history in the service of a, a movement or, or some, some activism? It's not really you know, either or. It's more a matter of maintaining the priority. What, what's the, what primary habit of mind needs to be established before someone actually deliberates about what to do? 
and that, that's actually a pretty good word, right? Deliberation. Deliberation has to do with trying to identify, you know, true means towards true ends. And it has to do with goodness. Goodness is always established before we get to the problem at hand. And uh, the historical habit of history, the habit of mind that we should uh, cultivate among our students, says the, the job number one is to understand the past. The past is different than the present. We, we learn a lot about ourselves by, by observing those who are in the past. Our understanding is the first thing that needs to happen in our education. It's, it's uh, part of the crowning excellence of our humanity to, to live by, by what we know, by what is true, by what we've discovered, by what we understand. Wisdom, of course, is kind of the crowning virtue of, uh, of the human mind. Uh, and all that needs to be in place before you turn around and, and look at your own responsibilities right now and say, okay, so here are the, the possibilities before us. How do we act? How do we act wisely? Well, we can only act wisely if we're wise, and we can only be wise if we've learned, if we really comprehend and understand the way things are. On the, on the other side of thinking about history, typically is a refusal to engage in understanding and to, to shift gears and to skip that and go right to activism. As Marx says, uh, philosophy uh, as the mode of understanding is really gone. What we really need is cha to change the world. So uh, collective Marxian thought, you know, is, is tractarian, it's ideological, it's driven towards revolution. The same kind of thing was in play with the Jacobins. Neither a Jacobin nor a Marxian or, or, or say, a communist uh, mode of thought is really appropriate to a truly liberal person, a truly free person who thinks not according to artificial division, reductions of the way things are, but according to the deepest, broadest, highest understanding of the way things are. That's job number one. We learned that from the get-go from our, our forebears, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. Uh, it was picked up by you know Augustine and, and Aquinas, all the great contributors to, to thought in our traditions. You've got to understand things first. Um, now, is the chronology of understanding and uh, you know moral responsibility or morally responding to the world around us is it really is it super tight is it is it rigid does that mean you, you, you never have to act right now no of course I opened the book with a quotation from historian Donald Kagan who claims that history is the best key to unlocking the mysteries of the human predicament. And somebody said, well, you know, history, really, you know, not, not something else, not philosophy, not faith, not love. And, of course, he would deny any of those, no matter what his particular practice might have been. What I think he was saying was that, look, much of our culture says no to the past. They say, forget it. That's, you know, Marx, remember, uh, in the economic and philosophical manuscripts, said that good socialists never ask questions about origins. And why is that? Because if you ask questions about origins, where we came from, what our foundations are, what, you know, who preceded us, well, this will upend the cart. Eventually, he knew, eventually, that would start to tear down the ideological framework by which you're impelled to act, to, to revolt, to change the world. And uh, I think Kagan, like Zolzhenitsyn and Zakharov, Sharansky, and other dissidents, Kagan's not a dissident, of course, but I think along the lines of, of men like Zolzhenitsyn, Kagan's saying, no, when the world says forget, one of the best things we can do morally and spiritually is to say, no, remember, don't forget. You know, the, 
the uh, the motto of the the Holocaust movement is to never uh, never again, and uh, corresponding never forget. You know, and we we need to always remember what's happened in the past as a great caution to how we should act in the present. But we have to understand it first. Understanding always comes before, at least in the broad cultural foundation, always comes before uh, moral action. You have an interesting point to make about the founders. You say that the American founders read more history than political theory and drew more from history as they framed the government. What is the significance of that? I mentioned that in the book because there's a, a fairly common interpretation of the founding but where someone might put their finger right on some expression of modern liberalism, especially in John Locke, and then run a direct linear connection to the troubles that we have today. I'm more sanguine about Locke. I'm more sanguine about uh, liberty as a source of unity than it is a source of division. My immediate point in that part of the book was to say the past is almost always more complex than any one thing. So to, to say that the founders read more history than they did political theory and that Montesquieu was more off-sided than Locke at the Constitutional Convention is simply to ask my fellow history teachers to you know wake up, look, look at the details, look at the past in its pastness, look at the, the event of the founding in its context, and, and don't try to reduce it to any one thing. Don't try to, to overread any one particular factor. I do think that the founders learned a lot about themselves as human beings, as founders of a republic, uh, by reading history. So they were very much attuned to events that had happened in the past that could help them to shape their own responsibilities. Both the founders and Lincoln were very attuned to the weaknesses, continental attempts to create republics and, and democracies. While early on, we seem to be very sanguine about the French Revolution, later on, that became a source of concern. And for Lincoln especially, he thought that what happened in France, what was happening in, in Latin America uh, in the middle of the 19th century, were cautionary tales. And if, if we're going to do this right, if we're going to have a popular government, a government of self, or I should say a, a constitution of self-governance, um, a culture that is truly democratic, then we better be very careful about how we read that, and we better be very determined in our efforts to make sure that that happens. Founding a republic is really hard. Maintaining it is even harder, as the Civil War and uh, Lincoln's uh, tenure as president give witness to. So that's what I mean. They were very they they knew a lot about history, and they took it in as formative narratives to shape the way they understood themselves as founders and as keepers of the Republic and to help them turn around, take responsibility as leaders. What is your distinction between history and memory? Uh, it's, it's important. You, you bring it up for several pages. For instance, what is the difference between our history and our memory of the Vietnam War? Well, that's a great question. There's the straightforward contents of the Vietnam War. How many men were engaged in battle, where the battles were, what it cost, how long the war went on. All these things are, are more or less hard facts that can be reconstructed uh, as events and relayed to readers in narrative form. It, it is very much the case that, and this was a big experience for me as a history student in uh, the late in the middle to late 70s, or I'm sorry, in 1980, actually, my university, University of Notre Dame, offered its the first course ever in its history on the history of the Vietnam War, and I was privileged to take that with a wonderful historian, uh, the late Vincent DeSantis, 
who was uh, mostly known for being a um, historian of diplomatic history. At the time, I think we had watched events. I think I was 19 at the time, pushing 20. And I think we had accepted the reports that we had uh, from you know, Walter Cronkite and the other news reporters. We had a general understanding that something went awry, uh, but we didn't understand it very well. Our, our memory of the war, I think, was uninformed. We were sad and we were sort of uncritical. And the study of the war, I think, did a couple of things for us as students. I think we, you know, for example, we learned that we never lost a major battle in Vietnam. I, I think we learned a lot of dishonesty of the press and the manipulation within the White House of events. I think we, we learned a lot about the failure of the Congress to, to play its role holding the purse strings, which they probably should have held uh, much more effectively. I think all these things informed our understanding of the war and shaped us as young people who are about to graduate soon thereafter to go out into the world to be more responsible as voters, as leaders, as teachers, and, and so forth. The memory is a little bit more emotional than history. Uh, there's, there's kind of a, what, what we used to call in teaching, there's an uh, objectivity in history. There's sort of a, um, a reasonable distance that you have from the past that allows you to work on it, to reconstruct events. Memory is more visceral. It's more emotional. It's more personal. Uh, the memory of slavery in America is not the same thing as the rather cooler study of it. The memory of slavery is very painful. The memory of our victory in World War II, apart from an objective study like uh, Victory Davis Hanson is a great uh, recent history of, of World War II. The, the study of it is, is wonderful, but the, the memory of it is part of our, our, our love of our country. We have a lot of pride. We have a lot of confidence as Americans because we were we ended up being the principal uh, agent of victory against a great threat to Western civilization, against a great uh, carnage that Hitler and, and Mussolini and uh, the Imperial Japanese wreaked in the middle of the last century. So memory can be uh, memory can be very painful, as is in the case of slavery. It's very wonderful and, and a, a builder, a source of confidence pride, love, it's restorative. It keeps us going. Okay, this is the kind of thing that we do well. The book is History Forgotten and Remembered. Andrews Verneman, thank you for joining us. My pleasure, and thank you for having me, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 332 2930.